Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, conversations on reproductive justice and activism. Black Feminist Rants is a podcast where we focus on reproductive justice, student activism, and what it means to be a young Black feminist today. Each episode, this podcast will serve as a safe space for us to rant about the specific issues surrounding being a Black woman and femme in the social justice landscape. We will also learn and grow as we engage with different reproductive justice and social justice topics. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin. Hey everyone, thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Black Feminist Rants. In this episode of BFR, it will be a discussion between myself and Christian Adams, who is the lead trainer for Sister Song, the National Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. And so on this episode, we're really going to be talking um, mostly about the Reproductive Justice Summer Institute that is being planned by Sister Song. Um, And me and uh, Christian have been taking the lead on this planning and have been doing it together. And so we're going to talk about what it's like to plan for a big event during COVID completely virtually and how the concept was created and how it's really important for us to, for us as well as Sister Song, to center youth voices. And Christian will also be sharing some of her RJ story with us, which is amazing um i just love hearing her speak and just having conversation with her so i hope you all will experience that as well and also i just wanted to put like a little disclaimer um during the interview i mentioned ltas and for those of you who don't know ltas stands for let's talk about sex it is a national conference that is put on by sister song every other year um and it's the national reproductive justice conference the largest reproductive justice conference and i mentioned that a little bit later in the episode and so i just wanted to clarify what that was because i didn't do it in the interview but without further ado let's begin so hey christian um thank you so much for agreeing to be on an episode of black feminist rants i'm really excited for you to talk um, about the upcoming rj summer institute as well as your rj story and your path to this work i was really inspired by what you shared in our one-on-one when i first came to sister song so i'm hoping that you can share this with the bfr audience and hopefully inspire them as well so to begin can you just introduce yourself with your name your pronouns and whatever titles feel um comfortable Yeah, sure. So my name is Christian Adams. I use she, her, hers pronouns. And I am currently the membership and development coordinator as well as the lead trainer at Sister Song um, National Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective in Atlanta. Perfect. Thank you. So to begin, can you talk a little bit about your RJ story and how that impacts the work you do at Sister Song? Sure. So my RJ story is um, definitely vast and and a lot of different pieces are touched, but I'll try to touch on several of those that actually impact why I do this work. Why I feel like this work is literally like my anointed space. Um, So I'll take you back to probably the very first moments that really I realized now was my RJ story. And that would have been me as a young girl um, becoming a teen mom at 13 years of age. And at 13 years of age, um, not having bodily autonomy to actually make the decision to whether or not I wanted to have an abortion or to keep this child, but pretty much was told that I would be keeping the child because of the religious you know, perspectives of my family and kind of like what that looks like coming out of Southern Baptist um, background and, you know, family members that are ministers and don't believe in abortion and abortion access was not even a consideration for me. 
And so when I think about that um, piece of it, I think about not having the autonomy then and not that I don't love my child because he knows I love him dearly and I love all four of my children now because I actually also have three other amazing children as well. But just really trying to help others to think about how sometimes we're, um, you know, there's decisions that are actually pushed upon us that are not necessarily our decisions. And so those decisions often transpire into other decisions for me that led me into actually like getting married young, um, right out before I finished high school. Um, because in my mind, I thought I need someone to like help me take care of this child, to be there for me in order for me to be able to go off to college or not or whatever that might look like for me. And so not wanting um, to be able to have to be stuck in a situation where I potentially would not be able to succeed and take care of myself. And so, you know, that that inability of not having autonomy actually just kind of like propelled me into many different situations throughout life. And so um, another part of that as well um, goes back to me as a young girl having that pregnancy and being pregnant, I went into preterm labor. And so like I was directly um, impacted by the medical industrial complex at the age of 13, because at 13, I'm going into this um, hospital. I, you know, I go into preterm labor. I'm only about seven, maybe seven and a half months. And literally all of a sudden, you know, the doctors and nurses rush in. They're forcing this piece of paper to my mom to sign. And they're like, oh, we need to do an emergency section. And so I didn't know what was happening. I had no clue. My mom signed the papers. And the next thing I know, I'm being flipped upside down on my hands and knees, rushed down the corridor on a gurney um, and them yelling like, you know, prepare for a C-section, prepare for a C-section. So at 13, my experience is like, I remember them putting this mask over my face as I'm going down the hall and literally like hearing doctors and nurses going, oh my goodness, like his other team mom, like all the things that they didn't think I could hear. But like, as I began to, you know, remember and think about that experience, I was like, oh, I remember. They weren't happy about having to like be there and like have this section. And so when I think about the scar that's still left with me today, um, even on my pelvis, like most young women I've talked to have like what they call a bikini line, which goes across your abdomen. Um, they chose to literally do a up and down scar incision um, for my C-section. And literally it's, when you look at it, you can tell like there was no intent to do a small scar or to make it as no impossible. Like it is wide. Um, it is like, they just literally was like, okay, we're just gonna hurry up and do this and get out, you know, get this baby out. Um, and then that, you know, that has continued to be something that I live with to, to know that that was, you know, their thinking in their mind was like, okay, here's this young girl that has clearly been fast and out here doing things she hasn't supposed to be doing. And so now she's in here, wants us to save this baby and she's on Medicaid. So like all the things that, you know, now I realize like, wow, impacted how I actually view the medical industrial complex system and how I, as a black woman, even today, I don't go to doctors today unless it literally is the point where I'm like, oh, I can no longer tolerate the pain or like I know it's life or death. And it's even crazy to the point that one of my black female doctors um, in, in North Carolina before I moved here to Georgia actually said to her nursing staff, if Miss Adams calls, you really need to like get her in because that means it's at the point she should not even, she should have already probably been here a week or so, four days before or earlier. 
Um, so like that experience is definitely a part of why I do this work, why I'm passionate about this work, um, not just with the birthing experience, but even just the understanding that every parent should also have the right to parent their children in safe and nurturing environments, right? Um, and so as I move forward and think about like, even as I'm doing the work right now as a as an activist and lead trainer, um, my life is still being impacted. And so my work continues because I realized that in this system that we live in, um, my very black sons, the three of them are not safe and have had major run-ins with, you know, situations where it wasn't even like, okay, well, we're stopping you because your car is suspicious because they might drive a fancy car with rims. Well, guess what? That's the going thing. That's what y'all show them in the videos. That's the narrative you make young men want to have. And so they work really hard and they buy nice cars. And then next thing I know, my youngest son has been pulled over twice, like within like a matter of a couple months of each other between the end of last year and this year. And so like as a black woman, I'm out training, trying to do this work and then still always wondering like, okay, are my sons gonna come home safe? Are they gonna be okay? Like is someone um, racially profiling them because of the cars they drive? And so when I think about the work and like how the work, how that work how my life impacts rather the work that I do is it's deep and wide and vast because it goes way back, but then it also is continuing to happen each and every day. Wow, thank you for that. Um, that covered so many things. I remember the first thing that stood out to me is when you needed the C-section and they kind of just shoved your mom a paper, but like they didn't think to ask the birthing person if they like to have you sign the papers, ask for your consent. No. Not at all. Um, yeah, yeah. It was like, oh, okay, well, we're giving it to her mom to sign. But never once did anyone say to me what was happening or anything. It was just, okay, flip you upside down. Next thing, you know, and off we go to have a C-section. And that makes me think of when we think of gynecology and like how it was birthed and on um, enslaved women who weren't like given any options. It just sounds very reminiscent of that. Like they didn't ask you for your consent. They just kind of flipped you over. They didn't tell you what was gonna happen or they told you didn't ask you. Um, that just definitely reminds me of slavery and reproduction. Yeah, I don't think I thought about it, but yeah, you're right. Um, now that, you know, I think about it, like it is, and it's part of the work that we I also talk about in trainings when I'm doing trainings with medical um, people and staff is how, yeah, like there were black women slaves that literally, in order for them to create the very speculum that, you know, is used for women, um, whether it's just for regular exams or birthing, like to open up our service, was because black women actually like, were, you, were, were just taken advantage of and, and just, you know, use um, however they saw fit and not even giving any type of like warning or medications or ask for their consent. And so, yeah, like I, yeah, modern day slavery to some level. Absolutely, absolutely. And this was like in 87, because this child is my oldest child and he was born in 87. So not that long ago at all. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Wow, that's um, thank you for sharing that. That definitely because, like, obviously, like, we know these things and we read about them, um, but it's really different when you hear people's stories and it's given perspective and you can, it like, allows you to internalize it. So, I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Of course. So, my next question is um, can you talk a little bit about your experience being a lead trainer at Sister Song? Yeah, um, so I started out doing training. Um, well, I do membership and development, but then probably about midway of 2018, 
um, Monica decided to, who's our executive director, decided to kind of like bring me along with her to do trainings and to kind of see how trainings were done so that I can begin to start doing trainings, um, you know, to help support her because she was the one doing the trainings prior to me coming for the most part and then a few other staff. And so um, as I, I guess I would say, began to get a deeper understanding of what it looks like to be in this work of reproductive justice, what it looks like to actually um, want to see sustainable behavior change, how that can be beneficial to our communities. Um, I decided that, okay, it's time for me to really like think about best use of myself. How do I then be able to bring folks along this work with us? And so as a social worker, um, it very much um, to me was about the relationship. Like the school that I came out of at East Carolina, um, literally for our grad program was talking about a relational perspective. And so everything we do is based on the relationship. It has to be about how you build authentic relationships. And so I began to use that understanding um, and my use of self to be able to step into my leadership around providing trainings and becoming the lead trainer. Um, and being able to actually have institutions um, and organizations that literally began to actually do some real culture shift. Um, and not that folks hadn't before, but it was, it was a different set of vetting of people um, and process of vetting of people to actually make sure that they were committed to the work that they were going to be implementing um, internal and external goals and, and also having me to be able to follow back up to do technical support, um, to offer that piece to make sure like what's going well, what's not going well, uh, what could we do differently? How can I support you to actually reach the goals that you set um, at the end of those trainings? Um, regarding the people, I have probably had people from all walks of life, right? So our RJ trainings, our institutions, organizations, universities, um, whoever calls us from across the country um, to do the work. And so I've been from, you know, like public health entities doing trainings to um, large scale medical facilities for like clinicians and nurse practitioners to even like a group of sex education um, students that were at a uni small university in Connecticut that are actually just like, hey, we're a campus organization. We talk about sex education, but we want to do that with an RJ lens. Um, and there were young white women that were just geared up and charged up and still are doing the work right now, um, even, you know, beyond their campus. So, I mean, many people from many different walks of life. Um, and again, to me, I think what I say stands out is that I value the relationship. And so when I go in to do the trainings, it's not just about a transaction um, or us being able to be able to, you know, have a way to actually just say we've checked box and done these trainings with people but it really is about how do we move people to action and how do we actually make sure that the folks that we're training are literally committed to seeing and making sure that black and brown folks that live at the margins are actually having better lives thank you okay. so um you said that you started training with monica um in 2018 right yes so from 2018 to now, well, did you did you do training somewhere elsewhere before you came to Sister Song? Did you have training experience or workshops? 
So um, prior to Sister Song, I actually was the supervisor for a national um, or actually international parenting program for Durham Public Health. And so part of my work there as a supervisor was not also just to supervise the program and do implementation of the program, but I actually became a trained accredited parenting um, provider and started providing large scale workshops, small scale group um, parenting sessions for parents throughout um, Durham and Alamance counties. So um, definitely facilitated like workshops um, to that level, but not full-fledged training, no. So you were, you were able to take your experiences there in a very specific setting to Sister Song and now you do national trainings on like a very broad topic, like all over the nation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it's so cool because like when I came to Sister Song, I was like, wait, I don't know anything about RJ. I was a little kind of, you know, nervous. Um, and But like the more I got there, the more I began to read and like to listen at Monica, to listen at Loretta Ross, to listen at other people in this movement that have been doing the work, like these black dope women that were just like, I'm gonna. I'm willing to sow into you, Christian, because like we know that you'll you'll get it if we just keep like showing, coaching you, and showing you like what it is that you need to kind of absorb. Um, and then reading books, and then like coworkers. There were amazing coworkers that were able to say, "Hey, read this book. Um, you know, read Sister Songs." Um, article what is rj um you know like just keep in dousing yourself and so for me um yeah like i'm i'm super excited to do this work i'm super excited to, and honored actually to be in this work um thinking that as a social worker i never would have foreseen me being at this point in my life and like literally though everything i feel like that i learned in social work and so many of the, the theories and practices of social work are very very important to the work that i'm doing right now um as a lead trainer as a facilitator um and as an activist um fighting for the rights of those living at the margin Thank you. Um, I have, I saw this on Instagram yesterday. And so I just kind of wanted to ask you, since you do have so much experience training, but um, I don't know if you've seen this, but there is a white woman who is the author of the book, White Fragility. Her name is Robin <laughs> D'Angelo, and she's been getting some backlash on Instagram, most notably from the um, organization called No White Saviors, because she um, like makes millions off of her book about white fragility. And then she makes lots of money. I don't know if it's millions as well, but I think it's close to a million or two million. Um, doing workshops about white fragility and how like racism manifests and things like that. And so her backlash was that people were saying she should be donating at least 15% of her income because so much of what she's learned and what she's teaching other white people is things that she's learned from black and brown people. And like you just, she just kind of like takes these, like learns from them and then goes and commercializes it and makes money off of it while those people don't have those same opportunities. So I was wondering what your thoughts as a trainer is on people who basically people who do trainings on issues that don't intimately pertain to them, but also don't give back to those communities. Well, I can tell you my thoughts on that. Um, my personal thoughts on that, this is outside of Sister Song, is that, yeah, I do agree uh, with the backlash that she's receiving. And like, if you're going to actually talk about the lived experiences of Black and Brown and Indigenous people, um, then you very well should be making sure that you're actually donating, that you're paying reparations in a very real way, not, you know, pennies on a dollar either. Um, and that you're actually like making sure that you honor the, the very folks that you are 
are extracting this information from. I think that is part of the problem. And I think even within social work, research, whatever it is, people writing books, um, if you're white and you're doing this work and you are actually doing it on, and you would say in communities of color, then you are wrong. You're dead wrong. And you absolutely should be called out. Um, and, and yes, we, as Loretta says, we'll call you out. We'll call you back in with love. But if you're not out here trying to actually be like, okay, now that I'm called in with love, I'm going to make some different actions and move in a different way. Then yeah, like let's shut you down. Like you shouldn't be out here like getting this part off these books. Um, and there's dope black women that have wrote just as many good books that literally could be getting this prestige and this honor um, to be able to come back into black communities. But because you're doing that as a white woman, your white privilege, again, is affording you, you know what I'm saying, for them to be overlooked and for you to actually be the one that's being honored in these spaces as like the expert. But you're not the expert of our life. I 100% agree. I like just thinking of it, like as a cis woman, I would be very uncomfortable making a lot of money, like giving talks on like transphobia and trans issues. I feel like as a quote unquote ally or um, accomplice or whatever, I feel like it's our job to amplify their voices. And when people come to us with questions, maybe give them an answer, but say, hey, go talk to this person, listen to their platform or or like donate to them or like whatever, because they, they are the experts and we aren't. And so I feel like Absolutely. I have that understanding and I don't understand why other people don't really <laughs> have that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, right? But you know, that's a part of white supremacy culture. Um, and as one of our, my previous colleagues, Jaleesa Jackson said, um, white supremacy culture is the water we all swim in, right? And so when we think about white women that swim in this water and think, oh, but I'm a, as they say, the good, I'm a good ally because I'm actually trying to educate white women. It's like, but nah, yeah, and nah, like that's a, such a thing. Like it can be and both, right? Yes, thank you, and now give us this money, right? Um, because like literally it's off of our our experiences, off of our trauma, off of our pain. Um, and I think that's the part that they don't get a lot of times. It's like, okay, I'm gonna do this work and I'm gonna take all this wealth and keep it for myself, but you're not actually making sure that you're paying honor and respect to the people that you, again, very much extracted this information from. Because that has been the thing that has always happened in, in colonization, right? Like to decolonize <laughs> what's happening in our in white supremacy culture, we really have to talk to white women that really don't understand that that is a part of the of the work. Is also thinking how do you then make sure that you're giving back to these communities? Thank you, exactly. Because we'll <laughs> you'll see this with like diversity and people will will diversity initiatives and people will allow diverse voices quote unquote in the room but then they don't really have a voice and they're not like actively speaking at the table and not made room for it, but then someone else with more privileged identities can hear those stories and say them at the table and they're listened to but then the, the people with the actual identities are kind of silenced so i definitely agree with that it's white supremacy the system and the culture and it's all like interconnected yeah absolutely absolutely so thank you for that. Um, yeah. Now I'm talk a little bit about um, the RJ Summer Institute that we've been planning. I'm very excited for it. It is August 10th through the 14th, 2 to 4 p.m. CST Central Time and 3 to 5 Eastern Time. But can you talk a little bit about where the concept for the Institute came from? Yeah, so this um, concept for the RJ Summer Institute actually was birthed from an idea. Um, at the end of May, um, it was a conversation, brainstorming conversation with myself, Monica, 
um, and then uh, Lindsey Gowen, who is an ally to reproductive justice, are also on our board. And so we were thinking about how do we plan a week of RJ um, education as a summer school per se. But of course, you know, this that was May, and it's like, wait, the summer, June and July kind of really went fast. So we're like, okay, by August, before the summer ends, let's do this thing. And so out of this brainstorming session, we really just talked about what does it look like to be able to continue educating our people um, and organizers and community folks and, and, you know, whoever that wants to be a part of this to continue the education that we have been doing through our face-to-face -face RJ training program, because that program was so, is so important to the work to make sure that we're continuing to like lose, not lose traction, but to continue the momentum, right? And so to, in order to continue that momentum, the idea was, okay, well, let's find some topics um, that we can actually educate folks on and then literally like have this summer institute. And so um, once the idea was kind of, you know, given to me, I was given free reign to kind of like figure out what that would look like. Um, and then out of that, um, decided that I wanted it to be a summer institute, a full week. Um, and I wanted to bring in thought leaders from across um, different perspectives in the movement. And so what really, really, really made it take off though was again, when you came in Lakia um, and had some time to heal because I mean, like, I think it's just so amazing to be like, hey, yes, I have, all, I have this knowledge. I know how to facilitate, but like, I'm not good with communications. I'm not good with graphics. I'm not good with trying to figure out like how to make sure that people on our social media are gonna like love and want to follow us and come to this institute. Um, and so for me, as I, I don't care about dating myself, as a 46 year old that gets to work in a company of dope, amazing, like brilliant young people, I was just like, yes, um, the universe has just answered my call. And like with this platform, this marketing, this social media, um, and then pulling this all together, like in the expertise of me being able to kind of like think about what the education of it would look like, it's just gonna be phenomenal. And so like, there we go. And we, and here's we are, um, our first ever Reproductive Justice um, Institute. <laughs> yes, and we are, today is Wednesday, July 29th. This episode will come out August 5th, but the the Eventbrite went live yesterday. And how well did we do <laughs> in terms of registration? Oh my God, <laughs> Lakia, the Eventbrite went live yesterday morning on the 28th. The first email went out at like, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> and I'm so excited, y'all. I can't barely pop. Um, and by 10 a.m., we had already sold over like 300 seats. And matter of fact, when I say sold, I mean like people had already held over 300 seats because it's free, right? right? So like over 300 seats. By noontime yesterday, we literally had to up the number of available seats to a thousand because we were almost ran out of the 600 seats we originally started with. Right. And then I woke up this morning and it was just like, oh, it's 10 a.m. Um, Wednesday morning. And literally now we've had to bump the seats up to 1400 seats. Mm -hmm. And we literally only have at this hour as we're recording this, um, I think it's a little over 600 seats per day available out of 1400. Yes. So when I tell you it is just exciting, um, yeah, I'm over, I'm bubbled with joy um, and just humbled at the same time to know like people really, really, really believe in this framework to be the work that can connect and be the common thread through all social justice movements. Um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I, I don't even know what else to say besides like, thank y'all, yes. <laughs> Right, because we we wanted to have two full weeks of advertising, and then 
sold out in almost all of them in the first day and we had to open up the first day. I don't know what's gonna happen next week. <laughs> so y'all better go and get you better go and register and get your tickets because they are going really quickly. Yeah, you better get those tickets. These seats are flying. <laughs> That's so amazing. Um oh, it's so it's so great. <laughs> yes. So can you talk a little bit about how the planning was for this um, during the times of COVID and how that might have been different from experience of planning with Sister Song pre-COVID-19? Yeah. Um, so pre-COVID-19 planning, you know, because we always had worked at the mother house out of our um, office space. And so everybody was kind of there for the most part, unless folks were traveling. And so you could easily like, you know, run over, talk to someone, um, grab them for information, um, maybe even, you know, make, you know, phone calls to folks and other people can kind of assist with that. But on this end during COVID, it's different, right? Because we're all working remotely. Um, everybody lives in their own spaces in different homes in different parts of the city. Um, I actually live outside of Atlanta. So I'm probably like one of the next to farthest people away. So of course for me, it's like, okay, I feel like I'm already far away, but then yet I still know that my team is, the team is there to support. Um, but it was really anxious for me at first because one, I also am an implementer. I don't create programs, right? Well, I do now. Oh, I do now with your assistance, Lakia. Um, <laughs> but I don't create programming. I implement programming. I'm an implementer. I'm a motivator. I, you know, I'm charismatic. I'm gonna bring people in and draw them in and get them, you know, to, to actually be a part of the movement, right? But like, so it was anxious. It was a little bit of nerves. Um, but like, as I began to sort the planning and with you being there, like, I honestly could say the moment that. Um, I asked Judith if you had free time as an intern to help. And Judith was like, well, let me reach out to her, ask her. And then you said, yes, absolutely. And you wanted to. Like, all the nerves and anxiousness, like, went away. Like, literally, it did. Um, and I knew in my heart of hearts, like, oh, this is about to be dope. Um, you're gonna keep, you're, you're calm, you're, you're, you know, able to kind of be like, hey, let me, okay, Miss Christian, it's gonna be all right. I'm like fiery and always like, oh wait, something's gonna go wrong. And I'm like, but no, it's gonna be okay, right? Um, and I just think that balance that we had together, even in these times of COVID, like for me, was what I needed um, to be able to help co-plan this, to kick, to make this be the institute that I would desire for it to be, um, for our organization, for the people that are gonna come, for the organizers, the movers and the shakers um, that want to be more involved in the work um, and understanding how this framework can be beneficial um, across all types of movements, yeah. I think that you bringing me in as like one of the youngest people, youngest people with Sister Song at the time really speaks to uh, the movement and Sister Song's commitment to like have young people involved in the work and not just, and I'm not just giving like, you know, like, you know, like just like little tasks, like you're actually like an, I'm actually an aspect of the um, planning. And so I really think that speaks to like, you, what is it called? You walk the talk, you walk the talk and talk the walk. Yeah, <laughs> you walk, we walk. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, we walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Y'all do that. Yes, we walk the walk and talk the talk. Absolutely. Yes, that. So I just want to say I really appreciated that. Well, we appreciate having you. Um, we appreciate you like asking to be an intern with us. Um, but then also like 
the ability for you to want to take on something this big because yes you're right co-planning something remotely this big that is a full week of programming is a lot and then like even stepping up to be like when I was like hey I need another moderator for like the panel on southern state-based organizing and you were just like okay I mean I had already put your name down but I was like oh she gonna say (laughs) (laughs) but I think that's important for people to know too like that's the value that we see in young people and like we I know that we can't do this work without bringing in young folks we cannot like there has to be this generational bridging between the baby boomers and the generation after that which is my generation and then millennials and gen x's and gen and gen z's because like you all are the ones that will move this work forward when I'm ready to retire, hopefully, um, someday, and can sit back and be like, yes, I remember when Lakia was an intern. Now she's like ED doing all things of whatever organization she's created, because that's how I see, right? Um, and like young people are just like literally out here every day proving to us that if you trust us and give us the word, we can move it. We can do it, right? And so I hope that folks that listen to this will actually see that um, as being beneficial and other organizations will be like, you know what, we need to get some young folks because clearly Sister Sarah has shown us that young people are paving the way. Um, and we have amazing like young folks in our office. Like I think I'm almost next to the oldest probably um, outside of one other person, but like, just the wealth of knowledge and technology that you all have bring to the space that I wouldn't have known what to do. I, I was lost. I was like, wait, you want me to create a what kind of graphic to put some pictures in the boxes to look like what? And like, you just literally took some headshots and went with it. Then I gave you wording language and Monica and us put language together and you just, you went with it and you made it flow. And like, we have this beautiful email that went out. We have these beautiful social media posts that are going out. Um, And that's all because of you. So no, absolutely not a small task. Um, It takes a lot of dedication. And I think that's one of the things that we also, you know, need to make sure is that we're validating the young people that are in our organizations um, and letting them know, like, we do appreciate, we do see you um, and we do need you here with us. (laughs) Thank you for that. That's so sweet. Kind of, because I talked about this a little bit with, I think, Monica and about Black women supporting each other and building community and things. And I really appreciated how you and Judith both really advocated for me to stay on with Sister Song past my internship. And now I have a position and yeah! <laughs> <play with> everything. <laughs> yes. If y'all are listening, Lakia is staying with Sister Song. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and- I, I remember going to El Tas um, this past fall in 2019, and I was yeah. in awe, and I was like, oh, I have to intern there. Um, and then that happened, but I never imagined that I would like get to stay on past my internship and continue with you all. So I really appreciated, one, being able to, like I said earlier, being able to actually do impactful work, uh, impactful work but then also having people like advocate for me and kind of, you know, speak on my behalf. So that was, I was out every week, I was telling my mom something new. I'd be like, she, my mom knows you. <laughs> you know what's so funny, Lakia? There's probably a couple other moms that know me very well that have never met me actually too. Um, so <laughs> all these moms are probably like, who is this Miss Christian? <laughs> but you know, I tell people everywhere I go, um, that seems to be a part of who I am, right? Is that I, that is my nature. That is my, who I really am and what I embody is like, 
I take people in. Everybody becomes my work kids. So I've got work kids out in addition to my own kids. Um, and like, I, if there's anything I can pour into you, y'all pour into me. And I think that's also the beautiful part about this work is that I've now learned how to figure out how to do social media posts and like to be able to create potential like images and boxes and like set up an Eventbrite page because like you and Judith who are dope, amazing young black women are like, yo, we got you, don't stress, right? Um, and I'm not stressing about it, I didn't stress about it, right? And like, that's important. That's important to actually be able to see the relationships build to a level that you know that it's authentic and it's real because it's a trans, it's, it's, it's a give and take, right? It's not just one person taking the other person giving, but it literally is like this walk that we're doing back and forth where, you know, okay, here, I don't understand this. Can you show me? And if it's something I know, I can share knowledge with you and it helps you. And so it's this reciprocated relationship. And that's what real relationship is about. It's a reciprocal um, work that happens um, each day. Absolutely. Definitely. And that definitely speaks to like, that's a testament to you and who you are that there's so many people, young people whose moms know who you are because they're constantly talking about you and raving about you. So that says a lot about you and your character. So thank you. (laughs) I'm ready to meet all these moms one day. (laughs) Um, So back to the Institute, what do you have for it? What do you, what do you envision for the Institute? My one primary goal, and I guess maybe that's crazy out of, out of five days, is that I envision long-term behavior um, change across social movements, social justice movements, but also within individual families, um, within institutions, within organizations, within universities. Like, I'm not um, asking for anything little. I am looking and reaching for the stars. I believe that people that come to this institute um, and that listen and that are on board and ready to be moved to action will be moved to action in ways they probably have never even began to think about. I think that each day there will be actions that folks can get moved to, that people can move on. Um, I think there will be a lot of work and maybe even some grappling that people will have to do and deal with. But I foresee that this work helps embed um, a deeper, more reflection of what RJ is, how it is actually can be used and implemented, um, not just actually in work and institutions, but in our everyday personal lives. Uh, And I think that's so important when we're talking about how do we move this movement forward is to understand that grassroots organizing is actually where it starts at. And if you can actually lay the foundation with individual families and community people to actually be able to start talking and having conversations more about how this framework um, encompasses all things from the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, to how I let children live in safe and nurturing environments, and and so importantly, bodily autonomy, so that we actually get to make our own decisions and choices for ourselves. But even beyond that, that we have access 
to the things and services that we need is where it really is going to store that. And so I'm pushing, hoping that this institute will push the reset button like this pandemic has done to some level um, and press go again for community folks and organizers that might not have had an opportunity to really be able to think about how reproductive justice is the framework that can become the common thread for all the work that is happening to get us off to liberation. Wow, that was a very eloquent uh, goal that you had. That sounds amazing. Um, that's why I only got one. <laughs> it's a really good one, though. So that's thank it. you. So you spoke about long-term long-term behavior change, and I know earlier we talked about um, like allies and white women and how they can be um, harmful. But what would it look like? Because I know we talked. Also, there's Lindsay Goodwin, I think, who that is one. An, mm-hmm. an amazing ally, a white woman. Um, how can basically we envision more Lindsay's or how can white women and allies with more privilege um, take up the work in a more ethical, like holistic way? Yeah, um, I wish I had 10, 20, 30, 40. I'm just gonna keep going Lindsay's, right? (laughs) To be in this work. And not that we don't have other white women that are in the work and, and are literally like working. And we say beyond allyship, but towards accomplice, right? Um, meaning that you're actually on the ground doing the work alongside of us, that you follow Black women's leadership, that you're not out here trying to be the lead yourself, but that you're finding the Black women in your life, in your space, um, that actually are the Black women that you connect with, right? Because we're not like always connect with everybody, right? So understanding as well, like you're gonna find somebody that, okay, well, you know what? I believe this, but I'm also not really maybe on this whole, you know, like they're on another whole path. Find the folks, the the folks that are actually the black women that are on the path that you want to be on. Find the person that you believe the work that they're doing is important and then follow their leadership and then get connected, get plugged in, read, um, talk to your family members, have what I call kitchen table conversations. I am calling white women to literally be like, yo, you can't do this work if you only want to do this work external of your home environment and do not want to actually look within your home to see who you rub elbows with every day. Because I'm going to need you to go get your mama's cousins, sisters, brothers, cousins, aunts, uncles, and all of them and bring them on over here. Because in order for us to really disrupt white supremacy culture, you have to be able to go and talk to them and say, hey, this is the work that I'm doing. This is what I'm invested in. This is what I'm committed in and make a stance. You can't keep straddling the fence. you got to make a stance. Either you're disrupting it or you're not. <laughs> well, that was a word. <laughs> that was amazing. That, so on episode, um, I think three of Blackness Rants, I talked about how you're not anti-racist unless you're being anti-racist to the people you have most access to and the most power over. And I feel like right. a great parallel to that where it's like, you're not doing all these things if you're not holding the people that you have most access to and you and you care about the most, if you're not holding them accountable, then what is the work that you're doing? So I feel like that was a great like parallel slash extension to that. So. You, better, you better let me snap it on up on this podcast. Yes, ma'am, absolutely. Because <laughs> I mean, literally like those are the people we wear every day, right? Um, and I think even more so what's been resonating and ringing in my spirit is that if, if white women are literally committed to this work, what is the fear? What is the fear of not talking to the people that you literally live with, reside with, talk to most of the time, um, have your greatest relationships with? How can you be in relationship with black and brown women and women of color if you can't even be in relationship, right relationship 
with your own people that you live with every day. Right? <laughs> right? I'm just saying. <laughs> Definitely. That's some, that's some work that's got to be done. <laughs> so our call to action would be to have these difficult conversations with people that um, you have intimate relations with. And then yes. also be sure to go to day three of the Institute because Lindsay Goodwin will be speaking <laughs> about disrupting white supremacy culture. Um, yeah, so you can like learn from a, a very good accomplice. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Lindsay's going to be talking about amazing practices for disrupting white supremacy culture. Um, and, and I know that Lindsay's going to bring a word. Like, she's going to take us all the way to church. I mean, she is Reverend Lindsay Godwin for a reason, right? Um, <laughs> so she's going to take us all the way to church. So I, yeah, invite folks that have not... Um, been in spaces to see what it looks like to from an ally or accomplice perspective to please jump in save your seat for day three um save your seat for all the days or as many days as you can and here's another tidbit if you can't attend a day or two then you want to run on over to sister song website at www.sistersong.net and you want to join to be a member because members will have access to every one of those recorded days. So there's no excuse. If you miss something, you can still get it. You just got to be a member to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Great plug. (laughs) Yes, honey. (laughs) See, that's why membership development training all goes together. That's like, you wear three hats. Absolutely, I do because I'm going to get this money. I'm going to talk about this membership, which is so important, and this fight for this work to make sure that people know, like, we got people out here, real people that are supporting the work. And then I'm going to do this education because, like, all that's tied all together. Exactly. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Comes back full circle. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, my last question, which I ask everyone, I think almost, um, what advice would you give to a young Black woman or a young Black person who's interested, or a young person in general, um, who's interested in getting into this movement and this work? I would say to any young person, particularly um, that is trying to get into the RJ um, uh, movement or into any social justice movement, let's just say that, right? Um, To be willing to be educated, be willing to be relational, to build relationships, um, to not be, to go beyond being transactional, to hold yourself accountable, to self-reflect, right? Um, Because self-reflection is so powerful for us as our own individual work is moving forward and as we're growing. Um, And then be willing to actually know how to follow the leadership of those that are actually already in the movement um, and learn and be able to actually like walk the walk with them because we have to be the ones to model the work for those that actually we're trying to bring in the work with us. So we're trying to bring white people into this work with us as accomplices, then we actually have to model for them what it looks like to actually build these authentic relationships and to value our leadership, our ability to be able to actually take care of ourselves. And so I would just say, be open to all the things, be available to building the new relationships um, and looking for the options and opportunities to actually like sustain relationships in a way that it helps us all get to liberation. Yeah, but yeah, thank you for this whole conversation. I had a lot of fun. Um, you dropped a lot of really good gems. So, and just thank you for all that you do for Sister Song and for young people. It's very appreciated. 
You're welcome and thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to put my voice out there to your audience. Um, and I look forward to hopefully um, seeing some folks and, and having some folks on the webinar for the Summer Institute coming up on the 10th. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, definitely let me know on Instagram or Twitter or whatever um, your thoughts on this episode. But don't forget to register for the RJ Summer Institute. It's going to be an amazing time. Also, um, since the recording of the episode, Loretta Ross has agreed to speak on day three uh, for disrupting white supremacy culture, as well as um, her original day, which was day one, an intro to reproductive justice. So definitely spread that around that Loretta Ross will be speaking on two days, not only one. Um, So yeah, definitely come out. And I will be speaking on day four. Um, I'll be moderating a panel on strategies for Southern state-based organizing. So thank you again so much for listening. Um, And don't forget to register for the Institute. And I hope to see you all there. And I hope you learned so much um, at the Institute.